Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Oh, hey, <laughs> what are y'all doing in here? Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Well, hello, my name is Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren and Leo, welcome home to your Boo Crew in episode 407. Hope you're doing wonderfully and feeling great. We are so stoked to make you part of this conversation we had with the brilliant Andrew Bowser. He's got an incredible history crafting music videos for amazing bands, leading the video side of Nerdist as their in-house director, and as a filmmaker himself. He also created a character that went viral starting back in 2012 during an E3 vlog on YouTube, and then began splicing that persona into different videos over the years, including the one titled Weird Satanist Guy that has earned millions of views all over the world. This character is Onyx the Fortuitous, and now Andrew has given him a fantastic feature film of his very own Onyx the Fortuitous and the Talisman of Souls is new on Screenbox right now. Join Andrew for a delightful convo as we celebrate his work, his love of the genre and this terrific film that's a real love letter to the best of the best of 80's adventure comedy horror he's such a kind and creative guy this is a real pleasure for us episode 407 with Andrew Bowser is now slaying Go ahead scream, that's all we need. Another Crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining Bloody Disgusting's Boo Crew in the Speakeasy Studio is a wonderfully talented creator who went from acting on stage and screen as a child to majoring in film at the School of Visual Arts. He began crafting music videos for the likes of Gym Class Heroes, Armor for Sleep, SR71, and his own project that was named one of the top unsigned bands in the U.S. by Alternative Press at the time. After starring in, writing, and directing award-winning comedy shorts for College Humor and Funnier Die, he was tapped as the in-house director for the game-changing Nerdist 
Beast Industries, which saw him collaborating with Bruce Campbell, Leanna Vamp, and a ton of others in what has become some of the most celebrated pop culture content online, even co-hosting their Bizarre States podcast. In the midst of all this is a character he created during a filmed report from E3 back in 2012 for a fictitious show called Game Smash. With that... Onyx the Fortuitous was born. He ended up splicing the character into other news reports and videos, including the viral weird Satanist guy that covered the unveiling of a Baphomet statue in Detroit, raking in millions of clicks from all around the world. Well, Onyx now has his very own feature horror comedy film. Onyx the Fortuitous and the Talisman of Souls premiered at Sundance this year and following its one-day nationwide theatrical release last month, comes to Screenbox on the 14th. It follows Onyx and a group of fellow devil worshippers as they attend a -a once-in-a-lifetime ritual held by their figurehead in a haunted mansion. It sounds spectacular because it is. We are honored to welcome the genius behind it all, Mr. Andrew Bowser. Thank you for having me. What a very comprehensive intro. Sending me back. I try my best. I try my best. (laughs) Well, we've been fans here for a long time. This is a real treat for us. Thank you. And you could tell, man, this thing is soaked with horror reference upon horror reference. You can tell a fan made it, and it makes it such a fun watch for a genre fan and just anybody getting into into the genre at all and we want to kind of rewind back and talk about your horror experience growing up what made you a horror fan well you know what's so funny is i was a scaredy kid i didn't <sighs> like horror i wasn't one of those one of those kids that saw the exorcist when they were six or had right. an older brother that showed them evil dead i was deathly afraid of horror films and i think it was because of my christian upbringing i was brought up in a methodist home going sure. to a methodist church and that stuff scared me you know we were always told like dungeons and dragons will let something into your home or <laughs> the satanic panic the in the satanic 80s panic. Yeah, that's freaky. That's still, that hit me a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I remember a friend of mine uh, who had, you know, Dungeons and Dragons books and thinking, can I go to his house anymore? Or right. do I need to tell my parents? I remember that. But weirdly, there was nothing more terrifying than the Bible <laughs> and the stuff I was reading <laughs> or hearing, you know, on Sundays as far as just damnation and sin and, and things kind of happening without you knowing it. Like, well, your sin might lead to this opening and this, this spirit might have uh, now have a stronghold in your home. And as a little kid, who already had anxiety issues, I was constantly panicking and freaking out and uh, didn't realize that actually watching horror films would help alleviate a lot of that. Um, And when I finally sat down, I think one of the first films I decided to watch was one of the Child's Play movies because my name is Andrew. When I was a kid, I was was called Andy. And uh, there was a, a preview on television late one night, I think for Child's Play 2. And Chucky said, I'm coming for you, Andy. And I remember thinking like, well, all right, I'm fucked. That's the most terrifying (laughs) thing. That was a really good voice. (laughs) Thank you. you. And I had just purchased a My Buddy doll that I had been waiting for. And I, I couldn't hang. I had to put him in the closet in my mother's room. But I was also upset that I couldn't just confront whatever it was that was so terrifying to me. So I remember seeing Child's Play or Child's Play 2 and ultimately loving it. Really being scared through it, but really, really loving the journey. Um, but another big one was just seeing Gremlins 2 in theaters. Um, I remember I'd not seen Gremlins 1, but I was obsessed with seeing Gremlins 2 from seeing promos on TV. And as we got closer to the date, I was getting more and more scared. And I told my dad at one point, I said, no matter what I say, I want to see Gremlins 2 the day it comes out. Take me. And he's like, OK, I will. And then the day before, I was like, forget what I said. I'm out. I'm not seeing Gremlins 2. It's going to scare the shit out of me. 
But then I went and I saw it and again, loved it, loved kind of living through being scared, but then ultimately, ultimately feeling rewarded for having gone on that little spooky adventure. So Child's Play and Gremlins and Gremlins 2 and, you know, Ernest Scared Stupid, those things were my my gateway sure. into the watching horror films. And then as it, you know, into my adolescence and, and teenager, that's like all I consumed. Wow. He just recently saw Gremlins. I, like a oh, year ago, wow. saw it for the first time. I wow. was like, what is I don't know how, I, like, I don't know how I avoided it all this time. I don't know, because I, yeah, I love the first Gremlins. Yeah. But I don't know why I totally just missed the boat on Gremlins 2. To see it now, oh my God, it's it's insane. It You know, I don't know that there's a film, the, 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 the film I saw in theaters, the first theatrical experience I had was Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And between that and Gremlins 2, that's pretty much all that makes me up. There's nothing else. There's been other films that have influenced me. But Roger Rabbit and Gremlins 2 are are so formative. And the humor that I find in Gremlins 2, it just worked for me. And as I got older, and you know, it's kind of derided and people criticize it for being so over the top or camp. And it all worked for me. And now I think it's being reevaluated for being a very self-aware sure. meta yeah. Uh, take on sequelizations. Yeah, before anyone else is really doing that. Yeah, yeah, but as a kid, I was like, I've got no problems with Kremlins 2. It all worked. (laughs) Let's go. We got a coloring book for it from the B. Dalton or the Walden books in the mall. Right away, Gremlins 2 was it. How me. was it experiencing, because, you know, obviously I haven't, I never got to see it in the theater. How was it experiencing that in the in the middle of the movie when it like shuts down and the Gremlins oh, like yeah. go in the, in the, in the, <laughs> in the projector booth? Was everybody sitting in the theater like, what the hell's going on? It blew my mind. And, and <laughs> the really interesting thing is, I, I, I had only started thinking about this recently. I had a nightmare before seeing Gremlins 2 where I dreamt what I thought the movie was going to be. Oh, And wow. it was a very dark, I mean, even darker than Gremlins 1. It was this really bleak horror film about these monsters that were just tearing people to shreds. And I can still think of certain visuals from that nightmare. And I was convinced that's what awaited me in the theater. And that's when I told my dad, I don't want to go. So weirdly, <laughs> watching Gremlins 2 was one of the first times I don't think my child mind understood but that I experienced like tonal differences or tracked a tonal difference. Yeah, wow. And like because of my nightmare, my nightmare was so grounded and real. Uh, then to sit in the theater and, you know, hear the Looney Tunes music or to experience a meta gag like that, I was like so liberating because it wasn't the scary thing I had dreamt about. And uh, I remember being on board for that theater gag. I don't think it got me. I think I remember feeling my stomach jump a little bit. Of yeah. Like, oh, my gosh, is the is the screening going to be stopped? <laughs> the gremlins are here. They're, they're here. They're here. <laughs> but then I, I just I just remember being so excited uh, all the way through. I mean, all the way through. I mean, when that bat gremlin showed up or that, geez, a spider gremlin showed up. Whoo! I remember this is a tangential, but. I remember when I had read that like Beetlejuice was going to be Batman and I forget what magazine I read it in, but I was like, I got to take a break. This is too much. Yeah. I just <laughs> yeah. love that was a dream. Like that era was just such a dream for me. My oh, little my little kid brain. It was the best. Now did yeah. you did you carry any of the scarier horror movies home with you at that point like whether you saw it on video or in the theater I'm just I'm saying because I saw my first horror movies in Nightmare on Elm Street 3 on uh-huh. video yeah and and the same thing I was terrified of horror movies uh, grew up kind of religious on my grandmother's side so I had you know always going to church when we visit grandma and you know nothing was scarier than horror movies and the devil right I know so Elm Street 3 I kind of braved the courage my dad had rented it the night before he left it in the VCR I I was sick home from school. I press play because I was curious. Mm-hmm. I was so scared, but I was so curious and I made myself sit through it. And 
it messed me up for probably yeah. two weeks. It's all I could think about. Yeah. And that's kind of what pulled me in, right? It was like, right. why am I so upset? Like, I was really affected by this. Did you have a movie that was like that for you? You know, it might have been Evil Dead because I had still, there were still films that I wouldn't go near. One was Evil Dead because I didn't know where it went. I didn't know about Evil Dead 2 and the tone shift there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and one was Hellraiser because I remember... <sighs> Uh, a just the title but the the jesus wept thing i think i had heard about and i just thought well i can get into horror if it stays fun but those might be a little too dark for me and then i you know as you mentioned i I grew up acting and i was in an independent film when i was maybe 11 or 12 and uh everybody that was in the film wanted to watch evil dead we were all staying in a cabin in maine oh wow making this indie film and so everyone was staying in the cabin and my dad was there with me and you know he'd let me stay up with the adults like uh, for uh, for a time until it was my bedtime but they were like we're gonna watch evil dead are you in andy and i was like yeah yeah for sure and in the back of my mind i'm like that's one of the ones like that's one of the ones that's too much and they started it and i also kind of had a crush on someone in the cast you know sure. who was much older than me but i you know she was like you can sit down here and i was like for sure so <laughs> i sat down and they started it and it didn't even matter what was happening the amount of fear i felt just because i didn't know where it was going was almost unbearable and I kept getting further and further away from the TV I eventually stood up behind the couch and kind of watched at a distance and then by the end of the film I'm like in the kitchen watching with half of my face covered from the other room but that one stayed with me because I think it remained a mystery I just remember seeing bits and pieces I didn't really digest it yeah and the same for Hellraiser I think I might have seen pieces of Hellraiser at someone's house and I just was disturbed by the moments I saw. But when I finally sat down and took them in whole, I, uh, I I loved them. And it's interesting to me that like something so scary, like Hellraiser, I can put Hellraiser 2 on. I just put it on a loop. I have a TV VCR in my office that I'm constantly, it's usually like one movie plays for a week. And it's always Gremlins 2. But if it's not, it's Hellraiser 2. And it's so funny that those things don't affect me anymore. Sure. I mean, I, I would hope they wouldn't. But I still hear people say, oh, I didn't like this movie because it wasn't scary. And I think, well, I haven't been scared since 1989. But, you know, that's not necessarily how I judge a horror film. Do you, but, can you, so can you write while watching movies? I do on mute. Like, it depends what stage of writing I'm at. Uh-huh. Like, uh, like, if it's just, um, if it's kind of exploratory uh, and I'm writing new scenes or figuring out the direction to go with a script, then I have to have music on. It's always John Carpenter. Nice. And it never anything else. And uh, and then I have something on my television that's just muted. And sometimes it's just textural. It might be old cartoons or it might be, you know, John Carpenter films that I know really well. But it can't be something that's new to me because it'll distract me. Right. But if I'm doing a rewrite where it's all about like cleaning things up, tightening, I don't really have anything on, no music, nothing playing. Uh, because I'm usually reading the script back to myself at that point and, and really dialing details in. Right, right. Would you say is there a particular horror film that was instrumental in kind of uh, having you pursue the filmmaking process yourself? Weirdly, it, it, it I've realized this lately. It goes back to Child's Play more than I thought uh, because... It scared me so much. Once I sat down and watched it, not only did I enjoy it, but I wound up meeting the actor that played Andy. Oh, no When way. I moved to New York to go to oh. film school, I was still auditioning and still acting. 
And uh, we met in an elevator for like a Pepsi commercial, going up for a Pepsi commercial, and we were scene partners together. No way! In that audition. I don't, I've never met Alex Vincent before, and I don't know if he would remember this, but we had a conversation in the elevator, and I was like, you know, I used to be so scared of your film, and then I watched it, and I told him the My Buddy story and all this stuff. But, um, but I realize now, re-watching Child's Play and then watching other Tom Holland films, how, how much Tom Holland's direction influenced me. Um, and, and how he, especially how he covered practical effects. Sure. And uh, so that one has become uh, really that and Tom Holland films in general became a lot more influential in a way that wasn't so obvious to me. It's very obvious to me that Pee-wee's Big Adventure is an influence or Gremlins. But when I revisit Fright Night and, and the first Child's Play, I see a lot of, I, I would like to think I see a lot of how I approach even breaking down a scene and staging mm-hmm. scenes. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I could totally see that as well. I wanted to know, jumping ahead a bit, and I probably you've probably talked the shit out of this, but just getting into the Onyx character itself and the whole E3 debut right. of Onyx, was that a character that came before that that you were kind of thinking about or was that something that kind of was on the spot at the time it kind of a combination i had not developed that character before i had not done i was taking ucb improv classes but i had not done that shtick in a class or discovered a vocal tick that i would later utilize for onyx i had not done anything live with that character or written or scripted what, so that was the first time we saw it is the first time it you was, did it it was the first time i'd ever done it uh, it was scripted and i had rehearsed it and memorized it but what i had hit on which is so funny to think about now i had because of the improv classes one of my teachers had had complimented me one time because I thought I'd done kind of poorly in class. And I had. I'd made a couple of really lame decisions in, a, in an improv scene. But she was always looking for a compliment for each performer. And she was like, Bowser, you're really good at specifics. And I was like, OK, uh, thanks. I didn't take it to be, uh, I think, the size of compliment it actually was. Sure. But what it wound up making me think about was when I improvise and when I write, I am pulling a lot from my stories that I experienced as a child, especially stuff that had an influence on my psyche and during those formative years. And uh, I had an idea for a character. I remember having the idea for a character that would backpedal uh, no matter what he had just said. If he, even if it was something he was certain of, if somebody said, what's your favorite movie? And he said, Gremlins 2? I don't know. He would immediately say, I don't know. Right. And I felt like that was an insight into this character psyche. And I remember telling my wife, hey, I want to do a character where no matter what he says, he's always saying, I don't know. And she was like, all right, what <laughs> so? But for me, it was a real window into something. I didn't know what. But then as I sat down to write the first sketch, I was pulling on all these stories from when I was a kid and, you know, stories of bullies and people I had a crush on that didn't like me back and blah, blah, blah. And that all kind of became the tapestry that made up Onyx. And now I realize I was also uh, trying to, I call him a processing agent for my anxiety and for my insecurities and fears that I had as a kid that truly were kind of undiagnosed. I mean, I, as an adult, have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder and with OCD. And as a kid, it was like, I don't know, man, you just think too much. Yeah. Yeah. When I started performing him and actually trying to highlight and amplify the things that stressed me out as a kid, I realized I was actually kind of manifesting some of those um, problems that I had. Oh, that's wild. And And so when people say, like, is he based on anyone... I, I say, yeah, he's based on undiagnosed fifth grade me yeah. uh, who's still in there because he went a long time without getting much insight into what was kind of twisting him up. And that's why Onyx is so twisted up. 
but that's also why it's so cathartic to perform him and take him on adventures because I'm also kind of, you know, taking my little kid self yeah. out on adventures. That's wild. Wow. So, yeah. And then, so what about just the, the style of dress and everything? He's got that goth look. Did that just come up because of the gaming? I No. You know what's so weird is that more comes from me. I think, I always joke that one of Onyx's favorite movies is The Crow, but it's just one of my favorite movies. <laughs> I, just, I just pin a lot of the, the more overt emo goth things. I pin those on Onyx, but they're just what I like. Um, no, I think I think he, there, had, there was probably some Something to, yeah, the time in which I shot that, I thought, oh, he maybe buys clothes from Hot Topic. Yeah. But they're also, they're a caricature, but they're also things that I just think he would like eternally. He's always going to like chains on things. He's always going to want, you know, uh, arm warmers or gauntlets and big boots and goggles. So, yeah, there's something that's kind of locked in the time of 2012. Got it, yeah. And, and growing up being in like emo bands, you know, most of my life. Um, but I think it's also just what he would he would always be attracted to in the film. We kind of try to evolve him out of that look and give him a you know a new ritual robe sure. look. It's like his an evolution for him. But yeah, it's also just because that's the stuff I like. I mean, I'm never going to not like a Beetlejuice stripe, you know, or red and black together. It's just like. Yeah, that's in me. So he's a collage of Did all that stuff. Did you keep all his costume? Do you have everything? I have. I wish I could say that I have everything. I don't have everything uh, because over the years, there'd be times where his videos would be doing really well. And I think, oh, this this Onyx guy is going to be around for a while. But then there'd be times where I was like, OK, I guess this isn't going anywhere. Sure. Let me, let me trash like, this yeah. door. It smells bad. Oh. So I got rid of different pieces over the years. But the uh, weirdly, what I just said, the arm warmers and the gauntlets are the ones from the first video and they haven't. Yeah, I've never replaced them. I I, when we went to make the film, I told the 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 head of wardrobe, I said, I want Onyx's wardrobe to have an upgrade because, you know, he he's not in sketch comedy anymore. Now he's in a film. (laughs) And the wardrobe guy was like, I think you need to wear everything you've always worn for Onyx because he wanted him. He's like, there's no greater gift than a a character feeling lived in in their wardrobe. And And I was like, yeah, but these gauntlets are falling apart. And he was like, yeah. Onyx's gauntlets would be falling apart. I was like, yeah, you're right. So we used one of the fedoras that I've had for years, and I might have gotten a new vest and some lighter pants just because the pants he wears are a real problem for sound. They are so jangly yeah. and noisy. So we got some lighter pants where the fabric didn't rustle as much. But um, the gauntlets are the only thing that has been there since the beginning. I want to know what what people's reaction. So I'm just you know going back to the first yeah. video again, like uh, the girl who plays Tessa Smash. Yeah, and you're going on your your monologue, and you're you're saying things like her witch doctor eyes and uh, yeah. <laughs> red raven's mane, and and she is completely straight faced the whole time. How do they do? How, how does Onyx perform with anybody and they keep a straight face? Well, I think this is what happens. Uh, so that was a good friend of mine who was a, a, my improv and comedy partner in my UCB 101 class. And I really trusted her to kind of play with me in that space. And I, I knew she would get it. We do scenes together where it's always it's really important to kind of be able to clock who's taking the lead. And there's scenes where I would be the straight man to her kind of zanier character and then vice versa. And we could always clue into each other's moves very easily. And so we did some live shows together. And uh, and so I knew she'd be a great scene partner for that. 
But ultimately, what winds up happening is I think people see how stressed I get performing Onyx and they just stop breaking because they feel so bad. I get so to get to his like pace, his manic. yeah, Yeah, it really takes like the first couple of takes are just not there. And it's only when I start to get angry at myself for flubbing a line or mistake, you know, messing something up that then I get that energy. And I mean, I'll even start to like clench my fist. And I get so intense that I think they're like, okay, this isn't funny anymore for like, I don't want to mess. I don't want to mess up because Andrew is so stressed about himself messing up. And at least that's what I kind of like deduce from living through so many Onyx shoots. I do make people laugh at times, but then there's clearly a point where they're like, okay, let's, let me, let me get myself together because Bowser has three pages to get through. But I get so angry. It's my kid actor self. When I mess up a line, I am furious. So and, I, I mean, he talks at like a race car pace. Yeah. And so what happens is I will. So any outtake one time, I think during the Kickstarter, I put up bloopers from Onyx, but I used to never show bloopers because it's really like uh, I removes the mystery because I go from being Onyx and I'm like, you know, maybe I'm a lot more who works at art. Maybe, ah, fuck. And then I just get so angry. I become Andrew yelling at himself and it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> um, and then I get right back into it. That's yeah. extraordinary. Is, is he? Is it become easier to perform? Yeah. Oh, without a doubt. I used to have to. There were some catchphrases or sentences that would kind of prime me to speak like him, and I would also realize over the course of filming, maybe I was dropping his his voice too much, or you know, slowing the pace. Uh, now I don't really have to prime myself. I can slip into it a lot easier. I'm really proud. I usually don't bring this up. I let other people bring it up, but I'll bring it up. There is one long kind of monologue toward the end of the film, and I am proud to say I got it every time. We we did three takes, and I got all of my lines right every time. But it was a single steady cam move out in the middle of the night in Massachusetts, freezing cold. I'm in my underwear, and I wanted to get it right, but I also wanted to get it right for myself and for like the legacy of Onyx content to where I got that every take perfectly and i did so then i could choose from those three takes often when i get one of those long monologues right i'm locked into the one i got right that one take there's not really another choice um so it does get easier but my dp and my producer olivia my dp dan and my producer olivia who also played farah in the film they're really my eyes on monitor when i'm out when i'm onyx and Olivia is really good at saying, I think you did drop him a little bit on that take. Do it again, a little more intense. And Dan is good at saying, yeah, you're, you're, re- you're relaxing a little too much. You need to go have a cup of coffee, get angry at yourself and mm. come back. So they're really good at kind of tracking where I'm at with him. When you dream, do you sometimes dream as honest? <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I don't think I ever have. Really? I have had stress dreams around the film. I have uh, leading up to Sundance. I had a, uh, I just was, I gave in. I'm, like, right, I'm, I'm going to have a stress dream every night. And I did from the time we found out we were accepted into Sundance until we screened, which was probably, I guess, two months in there of just a stress dream every night. Everything from our DCP not playing properly. Oh, I can't in the even theater, imagine something like that. Speakers yeah. going out. I mean, <laughs> I, I had dreams we were back on set and something didn't get shot that was already in the cut and done. Yeah. I was having every stress dream imaginable, but I was always Andrew. I was never, I was never Onyx. I don't know if I've ever had a dream from his perspective. The movie's kind of that. Yeah, it really yeah. is like a fever dream. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. So, was there a particular moment or video 
that inspired like okay i'm gonna write a feature about this guy he needs a feature the the first video weird gamer guy just kind of clued me into well first i i put that online and it did nothing for a year and i did just to be transparent i made it in the hopes that it would go viral sure i thought this is people are gonna think it's real and oh it'll be a good way to showcase this you know comedic character but it sat on the internet for a year, no views. Because I put it on a dummy channel for Game Smash. Right, a fake TV show, yeah. yeah. That looked extraordinarily real. Right, well, that was kind of the world I came from, was shooting packages like that. Yeah. So then it sat for a year, and then I went about my business, and uh, someone put it on Reddit uh, the next year during E3. Because I think E3 was kind of, you know, SEO for E3 was like coming back around. And then it went viral. And I hadn't thought about Onyx probably in that whole year. Or didn't even maybe know that he was Marcus and Onyx. Like, I, I had a bunch of characters that talked fast or were really nervous. But that video made me realize, okay, so he is a specific character. And if I do another one, I need to be honing in that and building out his backstory in his world. So wow. I did it again and then did it again. And then the thing that made me realize I could make a feature with him was, to be honest, it's a lot of people saying that that's not possible. Um, I remember I had kind of a frenemy where I worked um, when I put up Weird Arby's guy and Weird Gamer and Weird Satanist guy had already gone viral. And this frenemy kind of walked by my office and was like, oh, you do another one of those? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, well, I mean, lightning's not going to strike three times, bows. And I was like, what? all right, dude. Okay, what a chick. <laughs> but so, but then that one went that more fuel. viral. He, oh, and it was such fuel because... It was challenging me to think like there's something that I'm interested in here that's beyond the gimmick or the framing device of is it real? Is it not? And by the third video, I was like, I'm just interested in this guy. I'm interested in what he's thinking. And by that point, I was getting feedback from people that liked the videos just saying, I just like Onyx. It's not just the gimmick of was he really on the news or not? So I even had a, a, a someone that I had pitched something to at one point say, like, I'd watch Onyx make a sandwich. Like, they just loved the character. So I was starting to pick up on that and listen to that. Um, but I was still uncertain because I didn't know if there was anything there beyond what I had done in those videos. But I pitched a web series to Nerdist where he would have a proper kind of Wayne's World web series where he was in his basement with his friends making a public access show. And I remember writing, the, they said yes to it. And then I remember writing the first episode, and they were just 10 minutes long. And the first episode, I was like, okay, yeah, so he's got a friend. I like that. He got his stepdad. Episode two, I was like, okay, so right, they get into a spat, and then it's like a sitcom. I see. Episode three, I was like, I got nothing. I don't know what to do from here. And the actor that played my stepdad didn't know I was having that struggle. He just happened to bring this up to me one day on set of the web series, because I was writing them as we were shooting them. Oh, my God. And, and, and he said... You know, I really like Onyx. And I said, oh, thanks, man. And he's like, yeah, but you just, you know, you need to let that guy win every once in a while. And I was like, what What do you mean? He's like, well, I've made a bunch of Onyx sketches with you. And now like two episodes of this web series. And it's just him getting dumped on all the time. And then I thought, you know, not to get like too heady about it, but because he is kind of this manifestation of me as a kid, and I was kind of, I was dumping on him a lot. And I, I didn't have a lot of like, I don't know, goodwill toward him or favor. I had a lot of shame around him. And he kind of was my, you know, uh, just someone for me to kind of make fun of, but for probably some deeper purpose. Yeah, it's therapeutic in a way. Yeah, like not, not to be mean to him or to any type like him, more to be mean to myself. 
And so when Ryan said, let him win, I, I then I realized, oh, the rest of the web series is about him kind of heading toward a victory. And he's going to raise money to get this armor that he wants for, for LARPing. And not only that, he's going to get to meet the lead singer of his favorite band, Ghost. And like, so we shot all these bits that the trajectory then became about him having a victory. And that's what kind of broke it open for me. And I thought, oh, the way he has legs is if I keep evolving him and push him to go further within a narrative. And I don't just let him be the joke or the meme or the gif. And uh, that was really important, but it had to come from, I think, from, I think from an external source because I wasn't feeling that. Through the experience of watching this movie, you do something really interesting in the sense that you take some moments that we typically laugh at from Onyx. Yeah. And you completely flip those moments, making them at some points tragic. And you flip it on the audience where we're like, whoa, we were laughing at that the whole. Now I feel bad for laughing at that. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because they're like, yeah, it has like an unexpected emotional center. And I I did not expect it amidst the wild showpiece that it is to have those moments of tenderness and reflection. And that was it was incredible to experience. Was that part of the grand design? It was not. And I think there were other versions of this movie that uh, wouldn't have included that element. But those those versions didn't get made. And what I mean by that is over the years, there were versions of an Onyx movie I would pitch around town, even like to Nerdist or our parent company. And I would say, you know, so this Onyx character, we could put him in a parody of Terminator or I had a pitch for him once. It was called Beefy Bad Boy from Outer Space, which was kind of a Terminator parody <laughs> where this where Onyx was responsible for like he was a game developer or a programmer. And he he created something that was a, a virus that in the future, well, it ruins the game he's working on. But in the future, it takes out the robots so he has to be protected because he you know is such a bad developer a bad <laughs> program he accidentally that, made a virus yeah that saved humanity so you know i fleshed that out but every time i would pitch an onyx movie or tv series to a company the response would be definitely definitely that's so cool dude so could you do like onyx but it's alley g or could you do onyx and it's like more of a prank show like jackass sure. or bad grandpa or whatever if that's the one where they you know dress johnny knoxville up in old age makeup yeah or, yeah um and so i would i'd come up with those pitches but i wasn't listening to but what would i want to do if i made an onyx movie because i'm a realist and i know it doesn't really matter what i want to do someone's got to give me money and those films and TV shows never happened, and the other two scripts that I'd been working on that weren't Onyx-related never happened. I got close with a couple of other horror comedy projects, and then the pandemic hit, and I was in my garage with like nothing but you know a camera and my Onyx clothes, just thinking, what do I do? What there, what way forward do I have? Even even once we uh, holistically kind of all get through this crisis, what what way forward do I have? Just as a filmmaker, and I thought I have to crowdfund something. That's the only way I'm going to get any backing. And uh, the only thing that would have any kind of uh, leverage with the Internet and uh, with anyone that might back a crowdfunded project would be Onyx. Mm -hmm. So that's when I sat down and started writing, well, what would the Onyx script be that that I I care about and where my only bosses are these backers that are hopefully also fans and supporters. And then so two months from launching the Kickstarters when I started writing Talisman of Souls and there's really nothing from the film 
that existed in any other Onyx pitch. It was really like from that moment forward was a new story. And I first wrote it really gory. I thought it would be maybe his Evil Dead 2 where there's a lot of, you know, splatter happening around him and on him and he's reacting to these horrific circumstances. But when I started writing that and I wrote, you know, an ensemble that were more disposable, people that could get killed early in the film, it just didn't have legs. And I don't remember. I remember that specifically writing the character Shelly is what broke it open for me. Um, and I think it's because I based that character on someone I know. Oh, really? And by basing another character on the same way I've done with Onyx and my personal life, when I gave the other characters life, uh, so then I based Mr. Duke on my English teacher from high school. And then, uh, so then it, then it started to come to life and I realized, oh, this movie's about him finding his friends that he's never had. It's not about, I love blood splatter and gore, but that's just ultimately not what the heart of the movie is. Mm-hmm. And so then from there, building out the ensemble, having it be people that also care about Onyx and also people that he would care about, that just kind of centered everything to where scenes that you're talking about happened naturally because the whole movie just felt a little more heartfelt Mm -hmm. from the get-go. There would have been a version that wasn't that. There could have been a version that was an 88-minute long kind of gag movie of just Onyx, you know, falling into saw traps. Mm, yeah. Which could be fun. Yeah, also fun. <laughs> also fun. But um, but that just wasn't what came out once I sat down. The Boo Crew will be right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back. Come to the class reunion, but only if you have a craving for terror. For nothing is more terrifying than a party given by the Redeemer. No, 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 please. please. The Redeemer. No matter where you turn, he is there. No matter how far you run, he will track you down. No matter how you scream, he will continue to gather the souls of those who have sinned with the hand that bears the mark of the son of Satan. The face of terror is never more terrifying than when worn by the Redeemer. First, the omen. Now, the Redeemer. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. A Dimension Pictures release. didn't take you to write the script it the first draft came really fast and which is also something i didn't know until i started it i've lived with this character for so long 
it's a bit of a cheat code. You put him in any situation and there's not even a question of, well, what happens? It's like, I know what happens. If Onyx goes behind a, a secret, if Onyx sees a secret passageway open, he's going to be like, oh, secret passageways. You kidding me? You know, he, I know where he'll go in any situation and how he'll react. And some t- sometimes friends would read the script and say, what if he did this instead? And I'm like, well, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. So it was very easy to move him through the narrative yeah. and uh, and very easy to write his dialogue because he lives in my head. Um, and it came really fast. I mean, I probably had a really messy rough draft in like a month and then rewrote and then launched the Kickstarter, but then rewrote probably five or six more times. But the version that we we read a draft during the Kickstarter to raise money at the halfway point and it was a 123 page draft it's pretty much the movie that we made but just cut down but uh, that was a really fatty draft but reading it out loud on a live stream made me hyper aware of where the fat was and so then i was able to trim and i got i got it pretty close to a shooting draft after that live read so you're you're saying that writing him is is easy for you yeah but here you're writing for this whole entire group of wild characters and you mentioned uh shelly played by arden myron is yeah fantastic oh yeah. my god everybody in this movie and then jeffrey combs barbara <laughs> yeah. crampton you yeah know, you mentioned you're a huge reanimator fan i mean this is oh, this yeah. is royalty here yeah how was it going outside of onyx and writing through the lens of all the, like a really big group of characters. Well, I've always been the type of writer that has to picture someone in, in the role. I, I don't, I, I know writers that, d- that don't assign a voice to a character or a specific actor to that character. I can't, I have to picture an actor, even if it's someone that I'll never get, I need to be able to picture their voice to carry me through a draft or two to help me kind of find who the character is, no matter who performs the character. And so really picturing Shelly as one of my friends made me realize, okay, well, then who's Mr. Duke? And when I thought about it, I remember I had an English teacher in high school that was so kind to me. And I know looking back kind of suffered through so much of my tomfoolery yeah. my like why do i need to read this this is a stupid book and he's like pals i think you're gonna wind up loving it and then i would read something that like changed my life so i kind of put, took his personality and put it into mr duke at least to a degree and then the actors you know take it the rest of the way but um but it became really apparent early on that if i didn't care about them the way i've cared for onyx over the last 10 years that it would fall flat at least for me it would fall flat i wouldn't have the interest I think, to push and make this feature if I didn't care about the rest of the cast. Um, because, I've again, I've done Onyx for so long, mm-hmm. the 90-minute He Falls Into Saw Traps version, I might have been really over that really soon sure. into production. So working with other actors as a director and actor was part of what was so exciting and kind of like engaged a part of me that really needed to be engaged to make this movie the way we, we got it made. Did and you, then it just became so interesting to see them step into the Onyx world. Right. Did, did anything change once they brought those characters to life in the script where you're like, oh, my God, you're taking this character. OK, I've got I've got new ideas for this scene now. Yes, uh, constantly. And what's so cool is I, I shot a movie many, many years ago that D. Wallace was in and I must have been 22 directing her. Whoa. And I was a huge fan of hers. And I remember 
we shot a scene where uh, she plays uh, my character's mother and my character has disappeared. He's time traveled, but she doesn't know that. She thinks he's just gone missing. And this, there's this documentary crew interviewing her about this disappearance. And I gave her a coffee mug and I said, so you're drinking your morning coffee. The crew's in here interviewing you. And yeah, so let's try it, you know. And then she said, Andrew, I don't think I'd be drinking my coffee in this scene. And I was like, wait, <laughs> I was such a young director. Yeah, I was still like, like, oh, shit. But it's in the script. You've got your coffee mug. And she said, I think I'm a worried sick about where the hell is my son? B, this documentary crew has been following him. And now they're in my house asking, how do you feel that your son's disappeared? I'm not comfortable. I'm not relaxing. I'm not doing my morning routine. I might have made my coffee and it's sitting over there while I push through this interview to get them out of my house but i'm pensive my arms are folded i am not relaxed and i was like damn you are right <laughs> so and i should know that as an actor i felt that way on sets as a kid actor where i thought i had an insight that might matter but i also was too terrified i think to make suggestions yeah and so i learned really early listen to your actors and if it doesn't line up with the big picture they'll get that mm-hmm. I, I there were suggestions where i was like i get it and that's Honestly, great in a different scenario, but I think for this scene, we can't do that. Like, All right, I got you. But m- almost everything that my actors gave me was very helpful in shaping their characters and the rest of the world. One of the main scenes where we see an explosion of characters, one of my favorite scenes, probably one, one of the many centerpieces of the movie is that that big dinner where everyone gets <laughs> yeah. to, you get really introduced to everybody. They say they're back a bit, a bit of their backstory in really creative, fun ways, why they're there. It hooks you in immediately. How long did it take to get that scene? Right. There's a lot of choreography involved in the dialogue and the beats and everything. Yeah. That was our first day of filming. You're wow. Uh, and, uh, but very strategically. So I think there was a time where me and my DP thought, should we not do that first? Cause it is such a beast and it would probably be the whole day. And I think it was a whole day. I think it was a whole day. We might've gotten a couple of like, you know, one-off shots with Onyx somewhere throughout the house earlier in the day. But the bulk of that day, if not the entire day was the dining room scene. And, um, and when we got closer to scheduling and shooting, I thought, you know what? That's the best thing to start with because it is a calibration of tone and voice from all these characters. And also, it's them meeting Onyx and Mr. Duke saying, well, what led you to the teachings of Bartok? And so they're going to have to sit there and listen to me do an Onyx bit yeah. for a while. And I was more I was I've been doing Onyx for so long. I I'm not normally in my head about it at all. But I remember sitting down to do that and I and I did think, okay, I know I've shown each of these actors the Onyx videos, but now they're going to sit here and watch me do the bit and they're going to realize, oh, he's at an 11 the whole time. Yeah. Um, and I was nervous. I was actually a bit in my head and the first couple takes, maybe I wasn't going as hard as I should have. Um, but then I could see them responding as their characters and asking nicely, like, well, so, you know, what what did lead to this? And Shelly being really sweet about Onyx wanting yeah. her to, to read her poem and yada, yada, yada. That Then I kind of relaxed and Onyx relaxed and I just did the bit as I've always done it and I felt great. But um, that was the scene where I, as a director, was kind of checking to see if everybody was in the right tonal space because Onyx is absurd, but he is also grounded emotionally. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the dichotomy, if there is one, to that character is that it's ludicrous, but also he's talking about serious things a lot of times or, you know, things that have affected him in a serious way. Yeah. And so 
I told everybody from the start when I just had phone conversations with them, we're not, it's no offense to movies like this, but it's not a sketch comedy film in the sense that no, there are no stakes. We're all Looney Tunes characters. Uh, We can wink at the camera about any threat of violence and undercut things. It's not that. Uh, We all need to feel like we're real people and then let all of the absurdity speak for itself and the kind of heightened, you know, the surrealism with the creatures, et cetera. But they all got it. None of, there was never, I just don't think there was ever a day where anyone was in a space that didn't feel right for the Onyx world. They just really got it. And getting Barbara Crampton and Jeff Combs involved. I mean, you know, Barbara Crampton's in it a bit as, as your mom <laughs> and Jeff Combs. I mean, he is, he's a force in this movie, man. He is hilarious. Yeah. And terrifying. Dude, I recently saw him in a movie called Would You Rather. Have uh-huh. you seen that movie? Oh, yeah. That's great. That. He's fascinating He's in great. that. Yeah, anyone who hasn't seen Would You Rather, go, go check it He's out. Uh, Brittany Snow. Yeah, it's so good. What, like, How did you get him involved and what was it like working with them? So I had shot a few shorts with Barbara and uh, uh, I actually had shot a branded piece for, for Ash vs. Evil Dead. Yeah, I remember Funny that. Funny or Die. Yeah. Where I, just my horror nerd self was like, I, I wrote the script for it and I told Funny or Die you know, if you're not a horror nerd, you might not care, but I want the woman in the bar to be played by Barbara Crampton so that we have Bruce Campbell and Barbara Crampton in a scene. Oh, man. And they were like, I mean, okay, dude, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah. I was like, okay. <laughs> so it's just like I did a, 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 I did a video, a branded video for uh, Predator uh, while I was at Nerdist, and I wrote the script, and then I cast the guys from the Monster Squad to be in it uh, because oh, they were, you know. Fred who did you get from the Monster Decker Squad? Shane Black guys. Uh, I got ryan and andre oh man and so rudy right i so so i told the the fox people i was like so these are the actors playing these characters and she's like okay and i was like that's from the monster squad you they might not even know some of them did and they thought it was a blast that we had them but uh so barbara was a friend and honestly it was always a supporter of onyx she did a bit with me for that onyx web series because the way we would kind of pad out that web series was There'd be the narrative of whatever's happening in the basement, but then we would cut to packages that he shot. So we shot a package of Monster Palooza where he was quizzing Barbara on her career, and he knew more about it than she did. (laughs) Or then he would quiz her about his personal life, like... Which animal that I lost, which pet that died, did, you know, affected me the most? And she was like, I don't know, dude. And I think it was uh, Nate, my chinchilla Nate dog. But uh, Aww. so it didn't really happen. That's not something from my personal life. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, Lord's like, all like, what? Yes. <laughs> Although, weird turn of events, the cat that plays Onyx's cat in the movie was my cat, and he did pass away. Oh, But Aww. I love that he was in the film, and he's, you know immortalized that way but um barbara so barbara was a friend and so she knew about the onyx project and she knew that it was going to be an effort for me and i was going to do a crowdfunding campaign etc but i didn't think of jeffrey for bar talk and we had i was i had it's really just because this is another important lesson to learn as a director i had pictured a type and i pictured a, a christopher lee uh, kind of looming hammer horror villain type. Oh, got it. Um, because it was kind of like Onyx crashing into a, you know, almost like a Dark Mansion movie. Um, and I and was having lunch with Barbara, and I said, you know, we still haven't cast Bartok, and she, we were just having a lunch to catch up, and she said, have you thought about Jeffrey? And I said, well, I've thought about Jeffrey as an actor that I would love to work with one day, but I never thought about him as Bartok because I always felt he kind of occupies a similar space to Onyx, but that might just be me personally. I feel like I'm a similar performer to Jeffrey when he's played a villain, not necessarily in Would You Rather, but a lot of times when he plays a villain, he's an underdog that's kind of 
pushed too far and just makes the right. immoral choice right. in response to circumstance or whatever's happening around him. And that he's really scrappy and, you know, uh, even has a, an intensity to him and an urgency like Onyx does. But then she said, yeah, but you, you haven't seen him recently. You don't know what he can do with his experience and at his age. He's really killer. And I had one conversation with him and I was just sold because he was so not only was he on board to shave his head, to do the goatee, he got the world and he even asked questions about how we were going to shoot the creatures, how seriously we were going to take the film. Because he said, I know, I know you're saying a horror comedy, but like, but you're going to take it seriously, right? Like you want this thing to look good and feel grounded to a degree. And I'm like, yeah, totally. We're not going to be doing a bit about, you know, how whenever I've said I'm such a fan of these 80s films, younger filmmakers are like, I know, right? Because they're all like so shitty. And I'm like, no, that's not why I right, like them. Exactly, I yeah. like them because they worked for me and I like what worked about them, even down to child's play. I like, you know, the way they covered that doll and covered the puppets to make it convincing. And so he got that. He was like, you're going to try to make this a real thing, right? It's not just a, a joke. I said, no, not at all. So he was on board and we were lucky to have him. I The first day he shot, the scene that we shot got trimmed down a lot, but he had a big scene. It's where he first greets everyone at the mansion, yep, but it was yep. longer than that. And I was just giddy. Oh, I, I can't even <laughs> imagine, dude. Yeah, I was like, I, was I usually about that. I usually care. I carry stress on a set. I internalize because I've been doing that since I was a kid. But I, you wouldn't know I'm stressed. And I, I like that compliment, and my actors have said that. But the truth is, you know, yeah, I'm losing it in my head often. But I like keeping it on the rails as far as my exterior. And I, you don't, my DP sometimes doesn't even know if I'm happy with a shot because I really don't go one way or the other. Right. I'm just very stoic, and I'm like, that's good. Yeah, we can move on. All right, cool. <laughs> Everything's so chill. But when I watched Jeffrey perform that first day, I was like smiling and my DP looked over at me. He's like, you're loving this, aren't you? I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it felt like I was on a Stuart Gordon Yes, set. I like, know. Yeah. He's so fucking good. He's so He's good. really good. I have a question about Marty's meat hut. Yeah. <laughs> it looks oddly familiar, like in this neighborhood. <laughs> right. Like, like I have been there, but right. like I don't know where it is it is in Burbank and it is it doesn't exist anymore the building is there but it's one of those burger joints that's just been like 10 different companies oh, yeah, in the yeah, last yeah. couple of years what it was when we filmed was Blazin Burgers which was like yes. plant based oh, okay burgers okay by the equestrian yeah center. yeah oh yeah and he like the we were meant to shoot that in Massachusetts. We were meant to shoot everything in Massachusetts where the mansion was. But we also knew if our schedule got too tight, we could kick the meat hut and Onyx's house to L.A. and do a week of pickups uh, because it wasn't tied to the location. It wasn't tied to the region. And that's what we wound up doing at a certain point during our, our shooting. We thought, OK, I think it's time to kick the meat hut and Onyx's house to L.A. And so that's what we did. So, yeah, it's right here in Burbank. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I, w I wonder, what, what is it now? I don't know if it's, it's just occupied. It's still there, though. I it's think still the building there. says you can, you can go on the, the Onyx set tour. <laughs> yeah, if, yeah. If anybody gets inside of it, they might find a, a, a lunchbox full of Battle Cats toys. Because <laughs> did you leave it in we, there? We think we did. And we don't know where they went. I went back the next day and the employees were so nice. We couldn't find it. I looked myself, couldn't find them. But we lost the Battle Cats toys from the film that 
that night while we were filming at the meet hut and oh they have not been found. Oh my God. Oh no. Yeah. So at one point, if we would have driven around like late night in Burbank, would there have been a giant fucking puppet out oh, yeah. front of the, 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 the restaurant? So that was yeah. all shot like. Wow. All there, nine foot tall demon puppet. Holy shit. What time of night did you shoot that? We probably didn't have the puppet set up until 2 or 3 a.m. Was there anybody walking around who saw that? Yeah, there was a couple people, and then there were a couple of cars that drove by that honked or yelled. Yeah. But it was relatively slow. Um, you know, it's, it's a busy thoroughfare, but uh, in the middle of the night, it was relatively slow. But that was, I initially thought that that creature would be a, a, a suit. I thought it'd be a, a guy in a devil suit. Yeah. Um, and when I reached out to our creature designer, it was his, eye. he literally sketched that image of this crouched demon in front of a, a fast food hut. So and I thought, oh, well, that's cool. a much cooler. I almost picture like a guy standing at the counter that was, you know, just dressed as, uh, not dressed as a demon, but maybe, you know, like the devil from or the something. Dazzled or whatever. Sure. That yeah, yeah. Brendan Fraser. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's like prosthetic, you know, I'm a big pumpkin head guy. I was like, maybe it could be kind of pumpkin heady. But, um, but Adam, our creature designer, said, I think it should be a nine foot tall puppet. And I was like, yeah, sure, dude. Yeah, of course. Sold. How many people did it take to operate that thing? Actually, there's only one puppeteer inside of the Abaddon puppet. And then there are, there's someone on, and I think that's just someone on eyes with a remote. So I think it's just the two. What? For and being the largest puppet, it's, I think, the least amount of operators. That's crazy. And there yeah. was the idea, I mean, you got Ralph Ineson to voice that. Yeah. How the hell did you get, I mean... The coolest voice probably in, in the world, yeah. right? The Witch. I mean, you just watched the trailer for The Witch and he's on that, right? Yeah. It's just like, oh my yeah. God, it looks like his voice could peel paint. I know. I, I lucked out and one of my producers, Clark, had worked with him on a project. <sighs> so we had his information and he thought, you know, we, we could talk to Ralph. And again, it was during the pandemic and he was at home doing a lot of recording out of his home studio for voice work. And and I was just lucky that that I think Ralph had a great experience with Clark because Clark's a great producer and a good friend and a fellow director, a filmmaker. Yeah. And so Ralph was like, "Yeah, I'll do it." And then we were in a Zoom with him, and there and then there he is yelling, "Onyx the fart, do it is." And I'm like, "Can you hit the fart a little like fart do it is Onyx the fart do it is." I was like, "Yeah, there we go." Oh my god, that's but extraordinary. Another just down to it's always so, and I hope people I think. I think certain performers know this. It's so encouraging when an actor that has more experience than you do as a director, like Ralph Ineson or Jeffrey Combs, still gives it their all on a small project. There's just nothing more, I think, reaffirming and encouraging as a director to feel that they're, oh, they're in 110%, even though, for all they know, no one's ever going to see this thing. Yeah, yeah. And they're still, he's still in that booth screaming his head off as a demon um that's really really cool i love that yeah and all the extra world building stuff that's in this like you mentioned the battle cats is <laughs> does that exist or did you create the battle cats it's, we created the battle cats it's an amalgam of thundercats and then these toys that i had as a kid battle beasts which a lot of people don't remember because they weren't very them. successful, but they are a lot closer to what the Battlecats toys look like in the film. But the idea is that we made Battlecats toys off of a Thundercats style cartoon. So that's why the Battlecats cartoon looks like Thundercats. But they're these little toys and they used to have this uh, sticker on their chest. And if you pressed your thumb to it, it would reveal if they were earth water oh, or fire so it's got were, that kind of oil sticker yeah. that yes and they were like elementally powered creatures i don't, I don't remember know those yeah 
But me and my buddy, my buddy who was into Dungeons and Dragons, we would buy Battle Beast all the time. And it was one of those things where you grow up and you're like, did everybody remember Battle Beast? And people were like, no. And then when you look it up, you're like, yeah, they failed. They were like a failed product that nobody cared about. Um, so we made those. We made those That's toys. crazy. Battle and Cats, yeah. I mean, it, it goes crazy because it not only is, are, is he holding the toys, the lunchbox, <laughs> yeah. the underwear, the theme song. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. deep, man. Well, there's like, I sometimes I say to my wife, I think I might have gotten into making films just so I can make like toys and cartoons. And right, posters. that don't exist. Yeah. Right, because that's some of my favorite stuff is the world building. And I can go a little too deep. There's times where I will want to connect something or reference something uh, and there's just not time or resource to do it. But I was lucky that our art department loved that stuff. And I was also when the Kickstarter wrapped, even though we still needed further financing after that, I was able to start the work on specialty stuff like that. Like as a producer who's worked in you know digital content for so long, I know that if I wanted Battle Cats toys made on an indie film, the only way I could afford doing that is to get like a year out, you know? Yeah. Um, so a lot of that world building, we were only afforded on an indie film by having a bigger runway and me being able to farm out pockets of money from the Kickstarter right away to specialty props, specialty wardrobe and creature design. Um, otherwise, if I hadn't have sent out a dollar until we got all of our financing, we would have been shooting in a month and a half and there wouldn't have been time to do any of that kind of bespoke stuff. And so I just listened to my gut and started sending out some of the Kickstarter money right away on those those specialty departments. And that's why a lot of that stuff is so dialed in. <sighs> and our composer is a absolute genius Dude, and he's mad a monster. Man. Matt Mahaffey, right? Yeah. From self. Yeah. They were playing that song Kitties on oh, K-Rock. We play that. I'm, wow. I'm a fan of Why It All Wrong, that oh, project yeah. he did. Yeah. Yep. It's incredible. He was my uh, he's what got me through high school. Like self, well, I went to go see him. I didn't know that he was opening for a band called the Marvelous Three. And I went to go see them at uh, maybe 930 Club or maybe the Black Cat, some club in DC or Baltimore. And self opened for Marvelous Three. And I, during their set, walked over and bought all the CDs that they were selling at the merch table. Because I was like, this is changing my brain. Yeah. And I, I, uh, a friend of mine from high school reminded me, he was like, do you remember when we were, we worked in a movie theater in high school and you told me one day you're going to have Matt Mahaffey score your films. And I said, I don't remember saying that, but obviously that's what I hoped and, uh, and pursued. And now he has, and he is a genius and he's worked a lot in animation. And so if you say, could you do a Thundercat style theme song? I mean, it's all right there. Oh yeah. Not that it's not, not that it's not hard work, but it's just, he's got so much, in him as far as reference points and experience that there's just nothing he can't do. And then he does the Calypso, uh, spoiler alert, a Calypso cover of a song at oh, the end of the film. Oh, that's him too. Yeah. So wow. I, I say, could you do a Calypso version of a meatloaf song? And he's like, yeah, something like this. And then in a day he sends me something that feels perfect. He's just... That's almost disgusting. It, it's it's, <laughs> it's wild. almost disgusting. It's wild. I mean, like, uh, one of my favorite cues is during the blood ritual. Oh, yeah. And it, it's this perfect Night of the Creeps-esque he, yeah. 80s horror ear candy. Totally. He can go there, but then he can do this lush, yeah. cinematic, 
epic yeah. score stuff that's in there too at the drop of a hat and then the Battle Cats theme song. Totally. One of the things I'm most excited about is if I can get another film going, specifically if I can get another film going that's not Onyx, even though I do want to make another Onyx movie. But um, I would love to see what Matt does if I don't have to... Uh, put him into any areas of, of parody because he's so good at all of my references that I sent him were Night of the Creeps and the Creep Show score or, you know, obviously Gremlins and Nightmare on Elm Street and all of this stuff. And he wanted to hit that for me and for the tone of the film. But when he was allowed to kind of not reference anything and just follow his own instincts, it was so exciting. And so I'm hoping if I do get to make another Onyx film, maybe I get to make something in between where it's just Matt, like, unbridled. I don't have to tell him. Yeah. It's got to be a Calypso meatloaf song. He can just <sighs> give me whatever is brewing Crazy. in him. Have you ever that me. thought about doing, like, an Onyx children's book? Because when I had the That's poster a damn good idea. Up, that is a good my idea. kids were like, oh, I want to read this book. I'm like, it's not a book. It's a movie. <laughs> well, he's got the animate. There's animated uh, scenes at the end credits, too, <laughs> yes. right? You could put that into the kids' book. Totally. You know, I haven't thought about a kids' book, but what would make sense uh, about that is that, like, as I've explained, Explained, he's such a processing agent for a lot of what I experienced as a kid. Yeah. And the movie honestly wound up becoming so much more wholesome than I expected that I do think there's like life lessons I would love to teach. Yes. You know, yeah. little goth kids about. I think that'd um, be awesome. Oh, yeah. I would love that. And I, you know, Onyx can go one of two ways because he is so. He's stuck in his childhood, but then he's also really emotional and has outbursts and he kind of struggles with more adult feelings. Um, that a lot of times there's an explosion of that. And that's why the film's rated R because there's so much language, even though there's not much violence, he's still yelling and cussing about everything that's happening around him. But then there's the other side, which is, I think you could distill that into, yeah, a lesson for a younger audience because Onyx is still friendly and his world is still friendly ultimately. Right, right. Well, yeah. speaking, of, speaking of kids, the kids want to eat their cake. Yeah. So we're going to cut it in a short sec here. I have a couple more couple, couple more quick questions for yeah. you that I just needed to ask. Because it's also great to save a lot of these moments for some for surprises. Because there's some extraordinary <laughs> surprises. I don't want to ruin for this yeah. for anyone going into this. Um, let's see here. Um, Before you ask your question, yes. can I record clips for Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Totally. Uh, what was I going to say? Had Matt scored any features before? Any feature film like stuff? So this was Matt's first live action feature Got score. Okay. I believe he had scored um, uh, Rise of the Ninja Turtles feature. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. TV movie or streaming yeah, movie. Yeah. Um, but this was his first live action feature. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Which is a really cool. I was so excited that our collaboration was that because yeah. it was, even though it's my fourth feature, it's really my first effort in a traditionally cinematic sense. I've made a couple of experimental films and mockumentaries and found footage horror. This was, you know, definitely more traditional in its presentation. So the fact that it was his first live action score was thrilling. Oh, it's amazing that you got to, you got to pop that cherry, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. I would love to know, after the process of being Onyx across a feature film and all the things that you've learned about Onyx through his backstory and developing it and diving into it in the feature. Has that changed the way from now on that you think of Onyx and that you portray Onyx? Is Onyx completely different now for you? He definitely is. I think the, 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 the biggest difference is I now have a, a greater vision for where he could go and what he could be, how he could evolve as a character. I think I, I maybe 
was too redundant for too long in the formats that I kept him in and in the kind of joke cycles that I kept him in. And so the format expanding forced me to let him evolve. And I wound up being really excited about what I discovered. So now when I look at him, I don't think, oh, well, he, you know, he's good for one gag or he's good for that one reaction or this one video. I am thinking, well, how could what makes him work work in a larger narrative context? And that's definitely shifted. I don't think I'd be thinking that way if we hadn't have completed the film and if it hadn't have come together the way it's come together. Do you have a script ready for a follow-up? I have half of it. I, oh. I, I went mad before Sundance and I thought, I'm writing the full script for the sequel before we even get to Sundance. And I sat down and I got 45 pages in and I was like, I'm loving this, but it, it's now January 19th. We're leaving for Utah or whatever. It was just a tall order. But at least I broke the story i know i I have a beat sheet i know the outline i know where it ends i know what new characters there are and what returning characters there are it's still pretty small because i didn't want to go i didn't want to assume we could go from this first you know really low budget indie to like well so in the sequel he's in space and there's a crew of 30 you know uh different characters around him it's still small it's still at the mansion and it's mostly the people we've already met but there's definitely more creatures and I think just bigger action set pieces. Oh, that's so exciting, man. We're all, we're, we're fucking in. <laughs> I wanted to mention Olivia Taylor Dudley. She's someone who's uh, of importance to you. She plays yeah. Farrah in the movie. She's awesome. She's on board as a producer as well. What was her creative sort of input in the, the, the chemistry, the alchemy that you guys have developed over the years and how was it utilized in this experience? So she's involved from the very beginning. She's uh, the person I send uh, my scripts to. I oh, send, wow. I, I send pages to her and I send pages to my brother-in-law, Luke, who's also a, a producer on the film. And they both give me feedback and, and they give me feedback from different perspectives. And Olivia is so in tune with she's in tune with story as a whole, but she's especially in tune with like the internal um, machinations of a story from especially from characters perspectives. She'll challenge me and say, well, why would Mac do this? And I might think, I don't know, because I need I need Mac to do that because I'm, you know, I'm the writer pushing these people through. But she's there to say, OK, but why would the character do it? Why would the actor feel justified in doing it? Wow. And um, and so both her and Luke, I mean, 10, 15, 20 pages at a time, I'll send them stuff and they'll give me notes and they'll help me kind of course correct. And then on set, Olivia, as I mentioned earlier, her and my DP, Dan, are I mean, we wouldn't have made the movie without them because as much as I can wear many hats and I've, I've done that so many times, it's, it's somewhat uh, of a, like a preternatural ability for me to switch from directing to acting. There's just still no way for me to catch everything and see everything, especially when I'm on camera and Olivia would come up to me after takes and say, you didn't get it. And I'm like, yeah, we did. I did. I yelled. I screamed. I was onyx. Let's move on. She's like, I'm telling you, you're going to be editing this and you're going to be mad that you didn't listen. to Wow. Me. And so I would go, I'd go and either I would watch it and, and, and see if I agreed with her or I would take her word for it. And she was always right. There were so many times where, where I redid something because of her suggestion that in the edit, I was like, oh, she was so right. I wasn't happy with take six. And then her correction for take seven is what made it work. Um, and the same for Dan, my DP, he'll weigh in and he'll say, I don't think you're getting what you think you're getting. We might not have time for playback. Just trust me, do it one more time this way. So listening to them is clutch. And then Olivia was with me through the whole edit. I mean, 
when I edit, I become an editor and I, uh, I, I care about everything, but I really care about continuity and I really care about physical continuity, pacing, momentum, and I'll overcut things. Um, and, and the movie is pretty, it's a pretty cut movie, but that's because of the pace of Onyx. But Olivia would be like, hey, maybe sit on this wide shot for a couple of beats, my guy, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, no, we're in the wide shot for two counts and now we're in and we're in the coverage and then we're out. Because I worked on the internet for so long and digital content, there's really no time uh, for like the language of the camera. Sure. So she was able to kind of pull me back when I when it felt like I was thinking a little too binary as an editor. And then also, I might match something because of physical action, and that continuity really matters to me. And she'll say, "I was there. I know they have a better take." And if you're worried about where their arm is, you're 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 thinking about the wrong thing. And so I would dig and find other takes. And a lot of times it was a blend. It was a blend of me realizing she's right about the performance, but continuity does matter to me. So let me now retrofit it to match the take that's better. But so she was there the entire time in the edit. Oh, that's fast. You basically share a brain through oh, this. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's like, there's no way I could have cut it that fast without having a second set of eyes. Yeah. Because, you know, you get to a point and you go, okay, let me think about this for a while. And then you wrestle with something and you retool and you retool. Whereas if there's somebody there with uh, fresh eyes, they can look at it, sometimes see the solution sooner or see a solution that wasn't even on your radar because you're thinking in one direction. The only way we got it done with the, in the timeline that we got it done was because of Olivia. Last question. It's a super geeky one. As you know, we love movie prop books and the, and the work that goes into them. And the grand grimoire is beautifully done. Yeah. How, who, who threw that together? Yeah. How many are there? All that good. So did you get to keep one? I, I do. There's only one and I have. Really? It. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> and it's uh, that's an example of, a, of a, a prop builder that I reached out to really early on because they didn't want it to just be a store bought book or yeah. look like something that came off a shelf. So what I did was I found an Etsy seller and I think their name is Alex Libris Art, L-I-B-R-I-S. And I bought a book from them. I asked them if they could add some more ornate decoration and kind of like doll it up so that it was unique and it wasn't one that they sell from their shop and they didn't have the time to. Uh, so I bought it and then I sent it to our prop master, uh, Jeremy, uh, at a place called Caliber Crafts. And he created all these inlays, 3D printed, sculpted, and then 3D printed all of these kind of additive elements to make it feel like it's one of a kind. And it is truly one of a yeah, kind. Yeah, it is. There's only one, and it's in my garage. Uh, yeah, so it's in my garage. I've used it as a prop for some of the promo we've done to promote the release of the film. Oh, you got to get like a big display case for I know. it. And yeah, do the thing where it rotates or oh, something. Yeah. Man, that's a showstopper right there. And the there. talisman. I love oh, the talisman. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was and Caliber Crafts as well. Really? And the dagger yeah. as well? Daggers, and... Caliber Crafts. Yeah. Oh, so good. I saw a name on the credits, and I'm not sure sure if i'm not sure if it's the same guy but i saw thomas thomas kuntz name huh who guillermo del toro uses uh to make uh, automatons and things like that and his name was in the design list and i'm wondering if he was maybe associated with uh, the creature kid or, or somewhere along that line it's uh, very possible if it is the same thomas then it might be just because Adam Doherty, Creature Kid, and his team, you know, during the design process, we commissioned designs and art from many different yeah. artists. 
and and then we'd have these review sessions and so maybe something of his was it was a part of the creature kid effort huh. it's very possible interesting we'll have to watch his socials see if he's uh, talking yeah. about it yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right man well i just gotta say we loved the movie it's so fun it's an enchanting horror film outstanding effects it's got uh, that amblin heart that we love and that really is missing uh, for the most part in these days and uh, just sincere congratulations out to you and everybody who's listening Screenbox November 14th don't miss out Andrew thank you so much for being here man it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for having me it was a great chat and I uh, was really excited to be here thank you and that is what we're calling the Boo Crew Podcast episode 407 special thanks to Andrew Bowser Onyx the Fortuitous and the Talisman of Souls is available on Screenbox right now don't miss it. Production tracks for this episode provided by the good folks at Power Man 5000. Till next time, this is Trev for the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shams and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shen, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shen. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew, horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full-cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy or disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.